I want to start this morning by reading to you one of my favorite books from my childhood, written in 1972 by Judith Viorst. Uh, it strikes a chord, I suspect, with all of us, and I bet many of you have read it to children and grandchildren. It's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box, but in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said... I'm going to Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for my mom to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy, and then when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby, and while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, I said, everybody. No one even answered. So then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe men said we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones. But they can't make me wear them. When we picked up my dad at his office, he said I couldn't play with his copy machine, but I forgot. He also said, watch out for the books on his desk, and I was careful as could be, except for my elbow. He also said, don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas, 
There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse night light burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. You've had days like that, haven't you? I have too. Days when we're reminded that as much as we want to organize and manage and control our lives, sometimes we just don't. We can't. Things happen and we are unable to fix them. And sometimes multiple bad or hard things happen in a row. And instead of being just an annoyance or a speed bump, we are facing what feels like a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Or week. Or month. Or year. Life brings pain, and life brings suffering. Of the small, annoying kind, like getting gum in your hair or spilling coffee down your shirt when you're already late to get to work. And life brings suffering of the larger kind, like getting moved to a department at work when you don't want it or having a dear friend who's ill. And life brings suffering of the monumental, world-altering kind, like a wildfire destroys a house or a marriage falls apart, or a child gets cancer. Life brings suffering, and we don't get to choose it, and we don't get to control it, and we have to figure out, as people of faith, how to respond to it. This is what the book of Job in the Bible is all about. It's the scripture's exploration of how to understand suffering in this world, Now, if you know anything about the book of Job, you probably know about the first two chapters and the last two chapters and probably almost nothing about the 40-some chapters in between. The story on either end is the memorable part, but the heart of the book is really the middle part where Job and his friends have this very long philosophical and theological debate about suffering and what is a faithful response. Where is God in the midst of suffering? How does some suffering impact my faith in God? What do I say to God when I'm in the midst of a suffering moment? If you've ever asked questions like that, you are thinking right along in line with the book of Job. And we're going to spend three weeks here on the story of Job and do a little thinking about our own theology of suffering and how we interact with God and others in moments of suffering. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to make us dive down deep into the weeds of the Hebrew poetry of that middle part. That's for a seminary class, not a sermon. But I do think this is a, it's an important and beautiful book, a story that helps us think about the ideas we carry around about suffering and the role God has in it all. So the book starts out by telling us about a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. No one really knows where Uz was. <laughs> it's good. I didn't even realize I rhymed there, but it's good. Uh, it's, it's not a big and famous place. Saying that Job lived in Uz, it's, it's sort of like saying he lived in Finney County. Now, most of you are probably like, where? Carrie knows where that is. But most of you are like, we don't know where that is. And Job is actually not a common Israelite name. 
It's not even clear that he was a part of the Jewish people. So both of these facts give Job kind of a mythical quality, okay? He's not the guy next door. He's a funny-named man in a far-off place. And because of that, he sort of represents all of us. So this isn't really a story about a particular man. It's a story about what it means to be human. His story invites us to reflect on our own story. The first thing that we learn about Job is that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The author wants to make sure that we know that whatever happens to Job, it was not his fault. It was not his fault. Uh, It was not repayment for sin. It was not even a consequence of his own bad choices. It was not punishment for some sort of sordid act. It just happened out of the blue, unbidden. And that happens in life sometimes. Suffering comes out of nowhere and it changes our world. The story then tells us that God gets into a conversation with Satan. Now, it's important to remember here that that we don't, to not imagine as we read the story that this character is somehow the devil. Especially the devil as he's sort of portrayed in popular culture. Like a, a guy with horns and a pitchfork who lives in hell and wants to cause chaos and trouble for everyone on earth. This guy in the story, he is not the devil. He is the Satan. He is the Satan. Meaning Satan is his job title. It's a position he holds. It's not his name. Okay? The, the title, the Satan, is, Satan is a Hebrew word that means accuser. So the Satan's job, or the accuser's job, is to go around and investigate human beings and report on their activities to God. Perhaps he goes around earth looking for disloyal humans and then brings them to God's attention. The Satan, the accuser, he doesn't cause the disloyalty, he reports on it. So the accuser and God are having this conversation about humans that love God, and to the accuser, God says, oh, hey, look at this guy Job. Isn't he great? See how faithfully he loves me? And the accuser says, oh, sure, God. Sure, that's because you've given Job everything he could ever want. He's rich. He's got a good family. He's in perfect health. No wonder he's loyal to you. Change his life a little, and I bet we'll see his tune change. Now, what do you think will happen? When Job's life goes from great to not great, will he turn his back on God? Will his faithfulness evaporate? What about us? When suffering comes our way, does it change how we feel about God? Is it easier for us to love God when everything is going right, when we're healthy and wealthy? Or does our love of God come from something else? Does it come from something that doesn't depend on having a good and easy life? So in the book, God agrees to the accuser's plan and allows the accuser to change Job's life to see if he will indeed curse God when his life is turned upside down. And that's where we come to our reading for the day, where Job loses his property and his children. Next, in the book, he loses his health. He's afflicted with sores and illnesses, but God makes sure he will not die. And at the end of this opening to the story, Job's wife has had enough. She says, uh, then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. A little marital tension going on here for Job and his wife. 
You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So as chapter 2 ends, Job's faith is still intact. His loyalty to God is intact, for now, at least. There's a lot of the book yet to read. One thing that's comforting to me about the book of Job is that it's a reminder that suffering comes to us all. Even to those who seem like they're on the top of the world, the story says they can have it all fall apart quickly and for no good reason. Sometimes when people look back on their suffering, they're tempted to think, what did I do to deserve that? What did I do to have parents that wound up such a mess and divorced? What did I do to deserve breast cancer? What did I do to, to wind up married to someone who was bipolar? And almost always the answer is nothing. You didn't do a thing. Suffering is simply a part of life. Now, of course, there is sin. That's real. We screw up all the time. There's pain in our lives that we ourselves cause, pain that's a direct result of our mistakes. But our faith teaches us that when we've sinned, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, and we receive forgiveness every time by the grace of God. And God does not go on punishing us for the mistakes of our past. That's the good news of our gospel. Oftentimes what I would call suffering, it comes from no direct action or choice. It just happens by being a part of this broken, hurting, and imperfect world. So we are people of faith, not because we believe loving God will keep us free from suffering, Rather, part of being people of faith is knowing that whatever suffering comes our way, we'll have the resources to survive it. In moments of our suffering, both great and small, our faith can be a bedrock for us. It can be the firm foundation that keeps us upright when, even when the world is falling down around us. Our faith enables us to survive suffering. It doesn't prevent it, but it enables us to survive it, even to do so with joy and hope intact. Now, today is All Saints Day, the day in our worship life when we remember the dear ones that we have buried in the last year. And we're going to read the names of our saints here in just a moment, our saints of St. Paul's, but I know that many of us have other names in our hearts of people that we've lost in 2022. And my prayer is that those people will feel close to you today, your family members, your friends whom you're still grieving that we'll hold all of them up in gratitude to God today. And today, I want to invite you to remember the goodness of their lives, to remember the things that brought them joy and the accomplishments they had, but I also want to invite you to remember the suffering that they endured. As we name their names and we give thanks for their lives, let's remember the tragedies that they bore, the trials that shaped and formed them, the hard things that they endured with their faith still intact. Let's recall the times that God gave them power to rebuild after weathering the storm. Let's remember the strength that God gave them to stand back up after getting knocked down. Let's remember the depth of love they knew, in part because of the suffering that came their way. Let's today see their resilience and their patient endurance as we give thanks to God for their lives. The suffering that comes his way is not because God turned a back on Job. 
In fact, God goes on loving Job as much as ever, even through his long trial. And the same is true for us. God's back is not turned to us when we endure moments of pain and hardship. Rather, our God of healing, our God of restoration, our God of resurrection is with us every step of the way. And when the inevitable suffering of life finds its way to us, my prayer is that we will trust even more in the goodness of our God. Amen.